Terms and Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the world. Hey guys, we're back. Well, hi Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I, I yeah. I, I like this new intro because it's it's all Can't it's hard for you to interrupt. Me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <I just did. laughs> there it is. Sweet, sweet interruption. Yep, podcasting gold. Okay. Well, we you do. It, Paul, <laughs> you were late. Today's episode is on telehealth. Uh, but before we get to that, Paul, would you please tell the audience what this whole thing is about? Happy to, as always, Matt. Thank you for asking. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Uh, we also like to get to know our guests at the very beginning, but feel free to skip past that part. You can find timestamps in our expert show notes, mm. uh, which are provided at the same time as the episode. And scientifically, 4.1% of you skip it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sorry. We we gave Stuart access to our statistics, and now he's just like... <laughs> I think he checks them every five minutes and uh, is running all sorts of weird numbers. And four point one percent of you are just are slightly slump shouldered and just kind of slouching through life in a, a vaguely dissatisfied way. Well, we're going to tell you about the episode, but we we should tell you that we have with us a wonderful uh, producer slash co-host for part of the episode. We had some technical difficulties, but the wonderful Hannah R. Abrams is with us. Absolutely. I've just been sitting back and watching you guys go back and forth with this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a fun episode. Um, we learned a lot about telehealth, kind of the state of telehealth technology and policy and what the future is and how we can start implementing it now. And I think Stuart has a prepared diatribe oh, yeah. on this. Yeah. I actually have this one. So uh, so stepping on the heels of uh, Hannah. So w- with electric cars, virtual reality, nanotechnology, and a myriad of scientific and telecommunications advances on the horizon, the 21st century sure is shaping up to be a change. Is the, the 21st right century? There. Yeah, I did. <laughs> the 21st century is shaping up to change nearly every aspect of our life. It's no wonder that the delivery of healthcare will similarly be transformative in this century. In this episode, we try to understand and grasp how at least one advance telehealth and telemedicine will completely change how our patients approach their own health care and uh as was brought back to us uh reinvent the house call while this uh topic is broad in its scope we cover the ins and outs of telehealth and hope you our listeners develop a better understanding of how this fits into the delivery of health care i like yours better <laughs> <laughs> Our guest on this episode is Dr. Ana Maria Lopez. She is the president of the American College of Physicians, as well as the vice chair of medical oncology and chief of New Jersey Division, Sidney Kimmel Cancer Center of Thomas Jefferson University. She has served on ACP's Board of Regents, Ethics and Professionalism and Human Rights Committee, and was governor of ACP's Arizona chapter. She earned a bachelor's degree from Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania, a master's of public health from the University of Arizona, and a medical degree from Jefferson Medical College of Thomas University in Philadelphia. She completed an internal medicine residency and fellowship at the University of Arizona with a medical oncology and cancer prevention and etiology fellowship. Dr. Lopez's main areas of professional interest and expertise include cancer prevention and equity, 
integrative oncology, implementation of innovations in healthcare, including telemedicine and women's health. We are so happy to bring you this great conversation with Dr. Ana Maria Lopez. Ana Maria, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to talk to you about this topic, which uh, I personally know almost nothing about. So I'm much in need of your advice. But the first thing we want to do is ask you, can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself and include something about yourself that you do outside the world of medicine? Um, daughter, sister, mother, healer, innovator, and idea generator. I like it. Any and, and any hobbies that you wanted to highlight? Hobbies. Um, I play the piano. I uh, sketch, and I write poetry. That's uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's so wow. qualified. Holy cow! They sound they're, so, they're such nicer hobbies than what I have, which is like <laughs> watching awful movies and TV shows and jump roping. Yeah, I'm just uh, a big fan of the arts. Wonderful. What do you write poetry about? Is you know, anything I write, in particular? Um, you know, I, I write a lot of different things. So definitely not uh, just health related, uh, although some is. And um, I d I, there's, I think, just something about the power of words and the beauty of words that can be captured um, in a very different way in poetry. So, so I like to play with words like that. Well, gosh, I, I'm stunned. Um, <laughs> so I think rather than asking for, um, I think actually now that you piqued my curiosity, usually I ask about favorite book, but I might actually ask you now who your favorite poet is because now I'm, I'm very interested. Oh, wow. It, that's a very hard question. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Uh, um, <laughs> but one, the first that came to mind was Carl Sandburg. Oh, sure. It, and uh, just, I think, the variety, at least from my perspective, of, um, of work that he has. And, you know, uh, some that's just so, it, it feels to me like it's just very down to earth. And one where he talks, uh, just as examples, talking about love as onions and potatoes, you know, that it's really about the mundane things in life uh, and that that's really what sustains you. And then a really gripping one, uh, the man with the broken fingers, that he really, again, just to be able to put into words uh, an incredibly vivid image of uh, someone suffering. So, so yeah, I think it the ability to use words to paint pictures and to evoke feelings. So one of my favorite questions that we ask on the show is what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? One of the things that I, I remember is uh, being a resident, first year resident and being in the emergency department. So rotating through and I was feeling very good about myself, uh, you know, had been up however many hours and this young man had come in and he'd had a bike accident and I had uh, stitched him up and, uh, you know, he went off on his way and I thought I did a good job today. 
and I'm getting ready to leave. And uh, one of the folks came up and said, there's someone, you know, that says that they really want to see you. And he seems kind of mad. <laughs> and um, so I, you know, puzzled and I go out and I, um, there's a gentleman there, an older gentleman, and the young man was there and it's his grandfather. And uh, so, you know, I asked what, you know, what can I do for you? And he you know, he asked if I'm Dr. Lopez and I said, yes. And did I take care of his grandson? Yes. And I'm really like, what, what is happening? <laughs> you know? And, um, because he's clearly quite upset with me. And, uh, so, and we're speaking in Spanish. Um, and, and I explained to him, you know, this is what happened. And he, he came in, he'd had this accident and, you know, we did these x-rays. I explained like what, what happened clinically. And, and I finished by saying, and we took care of all that and he's now fine. <laughs> and uh, he looked at me very exasperated and he uh, raises his hands and just says, what did you do about the susto? And I'm like, the susto, what's that? Uh, which is the, the fear. You know, the, the concept that, yes, the, the young man went through a traumatic experience and now he's traumatized and now he has fear. And what did I do about that? And I had to say, can you tell me more about that? <laughs> I don't know about that. And uh, it really taught me, number one, that there's always uh, there's always more to learn about whatever it is that we're thinking about it, and um, and that ultimately, what's important is that the patient feels like they have uh, experienced that they are that they are better, that they're healing, uh, whatever that means to them. And so, uh, you know, we sat down, we talked for a while. Uh, I felt like I understood him. He felt like I think that. You know, we, we and I talked to the young man about what the experience was like and what he was feeling now and what though what the susto meant to him and uh, ways that you know he might be able to address that. So, so in that sense, I felt like it was learning for both of us, but it was um, really, really good learning for me. Yeah, that's wonderful. The susto, I, that's, that's sort of like a treat the whole patient. You, you, you know, you wouldn't, that's not like something you're taught. Like when you treat a patient, right. do, you know, we, we often forget to, to think about how scared they are about something. Cause like, we probably see that all the time and we're just like, oh yeah, it's hypertension, big deal. We'll give them a medicine and, you know, send them on their ways. But, uh, you kind of, yeah, that's a good story. I like it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Any any other questions before we get on to telehealth? I mean, I, I think she kind of answered the the question I was going to ask, recalling the first patient complaint, which you learn from this encounter. That pretty much uh, answers that <laughs> yeah. entire thing. So now I don't know what to ask. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, there are many failures one has in life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we should just move. I think we should just move on to the case. All right. <laughs> Oh boy! So this this case is absolutely SpongeBob themed as a combination of Stuart and my interests. But uh, 
Mr. Sheldon J. Plankton is a 56-year-old gentleman with a history of type 2 diabetes, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and generalized anxiety disorder, who was recently discharged from the hospital and set up with remote monitoring and chronic care management at discharge. He's excited about the possibility of managing his, his conditions from closer to home because it takes him a long time to walk to his appointments, and his wife Karen is tired of giving him a ride. He has some questions about how this might impact his long-term care. So just to start out, can you define for us what exactly is telehealth and telemedicine? Um, so telehealth, telemedicine, the Institute of Medicine defined telemedicine as the use of telecommunications technology to facilitate access to health. So when you think of it that way, telecommunications technology, that's really broad. So some people would say that includes even telephone conversations. And it certainly includes e-visits that use the internet. Uh, but it also would then include a high um, end use of technology where you could do virtually the entire physical exam, except for palpation. And I think we have to remember that part of what we do to achieve health is education. So patient education, professional education, you know, is certainly part of this tele-approach. So I would say that in a way, what you all do is telemedicine by doing this podcast. I, I definitely never thought of that. I never thought of it that way. <laughs> so I guess that leads to the next question. Can we bill for this? Yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> That'll be a 99446. <laughs> Right, right, right. So uh, specifically for Mr. Sheldon, for uh, so he's being discharged from the hospital with all all these conditions. Um, so what kind of services might he have access to as part of like a telemedicine suite? What could he expect? So a wide variety. So for example, for diabetes care, one of the things that I would really want people to think about and to walk away with is how can the technology make your practice easier. So in, in diabetes, uh, folks need to have follow-up. Uh, it's around the blood sugar, which could be uh, nutrition care, could be endocrine care. A lot of it is certainly done in general internal medicine, but also people need follow-up telepodiatry, uh, for example, which could be done as telepodiatry. Uh, tele they, they need retinal screening, which could be done at a distance. So I always tell the students that telemedicine is a translational science because if it's part of regular medicine and it's not already a tele aspect, it could become that way by talking with the engineers. So telediabetes would encompass all of those areas. For uh, congestive heart failure, for uh, monitoring, there's the electronic stethoscope. You could be examining a patient, and if we both had the electronic stethoscope on, I could hear what you're hearing. It's just pretty phenomenal. Uh, Tele-echo can be done at a distance, and this can be done in both store-forward and real-time. So that means that you could, for example, record the images, the... Um, Teleconsultant could review the images at a separate time so that you're not engaging both the 
patient and the teleconsultant simultaneously. And a lot of work that's been done with uh, anxiety, with uh, telepsychiatry. The most common real-time application in the world today is telepsychiatry, the most common store-forward that where images are interpreted, store-forward application for telemedicine is teledermatology. So a lot of opportunities, a lot of opportunities to bundle services, uh, to really try to meet the needs of the patient where he or she needs it, when they need it. Anna Maria, I actually heard there's a, a physician in Philadelphia who speaks about this sort of thing, and, and his whole viewpoint is that we need to move more of the care out of the hospitals. We need to use more of these virtual technologies to make care better and more convenient for patients. It, like, how far away do you think that is? I mean, is that is that definitely where we're going to be moving in the next couple years, decades, however long it is? You know, one of the wonderful things is that technology gets better and cheaper. So I think this is really not that far off into the future. And you have to think that what we are talking about right now is, you know, it's maybe 10 years old already, so that the innovations are even closer down the margin. So they part some of the innovations, for example, could be along the lines of smart rooms. So patients come into the exam space, they are nervous. The room detects the temperature of the patient, you know, that um, when we get nervous, we get cold. When we get nervous, our heart rate uh, increases. So the room detects those changes, those physiological changes in the person as the person enters the room. And the room does things to help the patient relax. Maybe the lights dim, maybe the room gets warmer, uh, allowing the patient to relax and have a, and have a more faithful examination. Uh, for, for example, another example is that we're very concerned about falls, right? Uh, very concerned that the pa- a patient maybe in the intensive care unit might be, uh, might, might get up. Uh, we're also very concerned that patients who are, we're, we're trying to age in place that they may fall. There are smart floors that detect, uh, the change in weight when a person steps, and also the feeling when a person falls. So those sorts of smart architecture are another you know, example of how telemedicine, telehealth, can really help connect the patient to healthcare in a, prom- in a, yeah, in a prompter way. I really am a big fan of the concept of how can we have more of these hospitals without walls? Uh, you know, people, um, I think uh, more, uh, hospitals are essential places, but they're not the best places in which to get well. So what are the ways in which people can have the support that they need to get better, uh, but in a setting that has uh, some more closer follow-up in their own home. And a lot of that can be done at a distance. I mean, there are even ICUs that are covered at a distance. 
So I think there's a lot of potential and the limitations um, are generally funding and, uh, and having, you know, the, the person power to, to really manage these uh, new models. Well, it's always kind of the paradox too, is that to sort of fund and, and gain traction for these things, the question is, where's is the evidence? But on the other hand, to get the evidence, you actually have to do the stuff. So I guess I, I guess my question for you right now is sort of as things stand, is there is there good evidence for telehealth and telemedicine? Yes. Uh, and there should be more. Yes. And there should be more studies. And I think that's really important because everything that we do, we want it to be the best. One of the um, most interesting uh, insights for me in beginning to do this work because what you think is the measure, right, is, well, it's got to be as good as in-person. And then you start to look at, well, what would the in-person data look like? And you realize that there's a lot of variability in the in-person data often. You know, the inter-rater reliability may not be that good. You know, so, so I think the first step, which I think is great, is that it forces us to think about uh, what's the evidence for what we're doing to begin with? And then what is the right metric to measure the telemedicine intervention against? Is it the, um, the faithfulness of the interpretation, let's say, of the image that's transmitted? Is it what the outcome is? You know, if I interpret it this way, then my action is such and the patient gets this intervention and if the interventions are similar, then is that what efficacy means? So thinking through those things is, I think, very helpful just in thinking about clinical medicine as a whole. Uh, they're very good evidence for many aspects of telemedicine. And, um, and I think in general, the data would say that, that tele is comparable. And there are even situations where tele can come out ahead. And this is, you know, not to say this is in, in all studies, but there have been studies that have demonstrated that telepsychiatry may take, may, uh, pa patients may be more satisfied uh, with telepsych than with an in-person visit. And in exploring some of why that might be, that in situations, let's say in certain rural communities where the patient who is seeking psychiatric services, you know, is going to a very specific clinician so that folks know, oh, that person is seeking mental health services. Whereas telepsychiatry, perhaps more generally being housed in a hospital, let's say, patient can go to the hospital for many reasons and then feels more satisfaction with the visit because of the greater anonymity. So that there's all of these factors that can play into, you know, the benefit of the intervention in the different settings. In the example you just gave, the the telepsychiatry, they would the patient's going to the hospital because there's some sort of audio audio video set up there that that they use to connect to the psychiatrist. I, I sort of imagine Correct. this just happening from like their cell phone, you know, they're sitting on their couch and they just call somebody. Which could happen in an urban setting um, and in some rural settings where the 
access to the broadband may be more limited. Uh, Folks may need to go to a location still in their community or closer to their community, but maybe not within their home. We're going to definitely get into billing and some of the practical uses of this. I did want to just briefly touch on, so I know the ACP put out a new updated ethics manual in 2019 and before and we part of what they talked about there are some of the risks of telehealth and just yeah Paul Paul is our physical exam you know Paul's our uh, is is physical exam a file a word Paul <laughs> Mike no it's not I definitely can say with a fair amount of confidence <laughs> so the you're kind of losing that sort of therapeutic touch uh, that you get when you're actually examining the patient how do you how do you respond to those kind of you know, things that when people say, well, telehealth, you can't have telehealth because you're not actually touching the patient. So it is true that, um, you know, I think uh, as a very touchy-feely person myself who hugs most of my patients at the end of a visit, um, it's, I'm definitely not a technophile, Um, but it really does increase access to care. And you can do virtually the entire exam. You cannot palpate, but like any other translational science, it is something the engineers are working on. And, and actually, a lot of that work is within the VA system. So, uh, you know, maybe in San Antonio, you would have access to the opportunity to put your hand in gloves and... This is true. Uh, palpate and abdomen, and uh, I could put my hands and gloves in Philadelphia, and kind of feel what you're feeling. So it is out there. It is being developed. Um, is it the same? It might not be the same, but is the outcome as good? You know, am I able to provide the care that my patient needs at, at the right time that they need it? Uh, and in a way that really helps improve uh, their life and their well-being. The last thing I wanted to say on that topic is the the other part that it said in the ethics manual is that you have to be able to establish a physician-patient relationship. And by by doing this show, like as you pointed out, uh, we're kind of like we are see- we are meeting people for the first time often and just video Skyping with them, or in some cases, they're not even, we're not even seeing them. We're just hearing them. And I, I believe we do develop pretty good rapport with them. So I wasn't too concerned that like rapport building is going to be a problem when you're, when you're doing a video chat or just talking by phone with a patient. So I don't really buy into that one. The touch thing though. Yeah. I guess if you have these like haptic gloves that, (laughs) and you would, would it, would it be somebody on the other end, maybe someone that's trained in, it's not necessarily, not necessarily another physician. It's just someone that's trained in like how to do a physical exam and they, you kind of guide them where you want them to, to examine the patient and they do that. Is that sort of how it would work? So it could be a physician, uh, you know, in an ideal world, it would be the person who is requesting the consult. So not do you have the opportunity to speak directly, but you also have the patient there? Um, but it doesn't have to be. And if uh, the person were, let's say, more of a telemedicine coordinator who is presenting the patient, then as much as possible to really have defined, this is how 
I want you to present the patient so that it makes sense to me. You know, let's say you're going to do a neuro exam. This is how the, to position the patient so that the findings are most visible to me. And then the meaning as the teleconsultant so that the teleconsultant can really more, most faithfully interpret the findings as they're elicited. Mm. So to real, to almost script it out, uh, this is where to place the stethoscope for the lungs, for the lung sounds, for the heart sounds. So that, again, it's very much in the mode of how the teleconsultant would do it. Um, very important not to leave the patient alone. I mean, some people, um, I think these are hard lessons learned that it's the patient should really it, at best have uh, the coordinator there at least have the coordinator there. The only exception to that is in telepsychiatry, where generally the coordinator is there at the beginning, turns on the camera. Uh, and I think what's important is also to remember always that the, the technology is a tool. So how you position the tool, how you position the technology really helps you to engage with the patient. You know, if we were doing this uh, as a video conference, uh, where I looked would be important because it would make you feel that I'm, I, I'm engaging you or not. If I'm just looking at the screen and not at the camera, it may look like I'm looking past you. It may look like I'm really not being attentive to our conversation. So those things are very important to be cognizant of so that you are really demonstrating that uh, that, you're com- that you're communicating. Stuart, where do you want to go next with the case here? We yeah, have, so we have I, I, uh, I actually, Mr. Sheldon J. Plankton. We kind of right. left him out to dry here. Yeah, yeah so I, I actually want to get, get back to that because a lot of the things that we're touching on are really touching around this. So Mr. Plankton, he decides that he wants to figure out what the secret is behind mouthwatering Texas barbecue. So he takes a cross-country trip to Sweetwater, Texas to indulge in some succulent barbecue. His PCM's care team calls during a scheduled weekly consultation and it's a small amount of weight gain with lower extremity swelling. But otherwise, he's asymptomatic at this time. So one of the concerns that's been brought up is providing telehealth across state lines. Um, where are you providing healthcare uh, in a state that you're not currently licensed in? Could you could you like kind of touch on this? What are the concerns there, and how are we addressing that? Sure. So we're licensed by state, except for Indian Health Services and the VA. There are efforts to have some cross licensure availability, perhaps for telemedicine. Uh, I think there's a lot of recognition that mm-hmm. um, that it is a barrier. On the one hand, on the other hand, to really support the importance of the state jurisdiction. So, so I think it's a it's a balance, and where that resolves, I don't think we know. And there are companies that will license you in all fifty states, which uh, is is very that sounds, that sounds onerous. <laughs> Quite a feat, yeah. Yeah. and must cost yeah. a fortune. Right, right, right. So licensure issues are real. Uh, Some states have a limit, you know, if it's your patient and they're away, Mm -hmm. then it is okay to, you know, to cover them while they're away. But, uh, But the states are different. 
Okay. So that, that's not ubiquitous. So if, let's say I have an established relationship with a patient. He crosses state lines. It's possible that that state line that they crossed, they don't recognize that relationship? Yeah, I, I'm not sure that it's universal. Okay. So that, and that kind of goes uh, lock and step with next question. Um, so in November 2018, the CMS released some guidance on interprofessional consultation codes. Uh, for those that don't know, those are the, the weird E&M codes 99446 through 99449, 99451, 99452. Um, are these codes, is this a way that we can get around some of that interstate issue to say, let's, let's say uh, I know a physician across state lines who's able to see my patient, but I can provide those interprofessional services to that physician to provide service to my patient? So I don't know about this being a way to circumvent the state line thing. Okay. But um, this is definitely helpful for the concept of store forward technology. Right. Where, you know, again, let's say an image or an EKG is transmitted and that's what's interpreted so that the clinician uh, can that one physician can then talk to the other and provide you know, this is the interpretation. Right. Um, the other um, aspect where this may be applicable, and I, I don't know, is for echo. Have you guys, um, you know, the concept of echo being that there are people, let's say this emerged in New Mexico um, around hepatitis C. So physicians who are seeing patients, uh, but they may want to connect with uh, with more of an expert. And then I, I think of it as a concept, it's like chart rounds, you mm-hmm. know, where um, you have your two patients with X and someone else, there are three patients. And then uh, and, and we meet with, uh, let's say, an expert in hep C and just say, you know, this is what's happening with Mr. Smith. This is what's happening right. with Mr. Jones. And then just review those. And everybody learns. And I think because of our training, we learn a lot through case presentations. Right. So it's a great model. And this may be a model be- to um, to have codes uh, for that experience. Now, you're referring to the Project ECHO, the telemedicine model for, yeah. So that is something that, that we do utilize, but we don't bill for it. So we, we provide those services to many remote uh, facilities, but uh, currently we're not we're not billing for that because we're not really sure how to interpret the uh, interstate issues with telemedicine. And I'm certain when that it'd be nice to get some kind of a of a guidance from CMS on that, but nothing that I know of at the present time. And I've delved through all the CMS paperwork, and there's not a lot that tells me whether or not we can or can't. And it, it kind of begs the question, even if you, you know, post a patient's case and say, I need some help on this one on, on like Sermo or something, you know, wh- where do we stop? Wh- where do we draw that, those lines? And I think it's, it, we, it's, we've got to be kind of careful because a threshold is only five minutes to bill for some of these codes. Like the 99446 is five minutes, 99451 is five minutes. And it's easy to spend five minutes on a patient's case. Um, and uh, without having a the patient's consent, it, that may look kind of questionable. So I think we, we've got to be very careful. But it is a great concept to be able to connect the, the clinicians. And also that that's how we learn. And I'll, I'll mm-hmm. just share with you an experience where uh, we had started a tele service. 
And I was very excited about it because we had lots of patience and a lot of interest and uh, it was a, it was busy. And over time, I began to notice that the number of consoles seemed to decrease. And I thought, what are we doing wrong? So, you know, you know, look through and, uh, you know, we hadn't changed anything and, uh, you know, looked at the usual possibilities. And so I went back and, uh, and asked the referring docs, uh, you know, how's it going? Oh, this is going great. Um, and finally just said, what are we doing wrong? <laughs> and, uh, they said, oh, no, no, you're not doing anything wrong. It's we've learned. And so now we just, we send our tougher ca cases now mm. because we know now that at this point, this is what we would, you know, this is what should be done. So I thought, what a great thing mm. because now the healthcare, it's not just that the healthcare has been impacted for that one patient, but it's really been impacted for similar patients. And now it's the more complicated patients that are being sent for evaluation. Right. So in a way, working yourself out of a job, you know, which is really, you want the, the more complex to be coming in. And so I thought it was a great, uh, I thought, oh, we're doing the right thing. Ana Maria, I wanted to clarify where were the referring so let's say I'm the referring physician I wanted to use the tele-rheumatology services would I be would I have been part of the visit and and virtually have been there yes okay so that's why I was learning it wasn't just getting the chart mm -hmm. back like okay what test did they order all right next time I see this I'll order those it was a, you're actually right. there so you you heard them counseling your patient and you heard right. them you heard what they asked what they looked for and all that exactly and that, that, that kind of begs the next pearl, and, and I'm not sure if you know this or not, but both the consulting and the the, the providers who, who's providing the, the consultation services and the individual who's actually doing the consulting can bill for the same code, so 99451, which is a 0.7 RV, work RVU. So almost the same thing. It's a little bit less than 99213. But, so, uh, but in telemedicine, there are ways where the sending site can bill a facility fee. Right. So again, there are, um, I mean, it is time and it is commitment. So having the opportunity to have some compensation for that yeah. is important. It'd be nice if, to have the streamlined moving to the future. I, I, I'm not sure of, uh, whenever I talk to our coders, they just have this big question mark over their head. They don't really know how to approach this. And so um, it'd be nice when we start teaching this to our coders. Uh, especially since a lot of these codes are new since 2018, November 2018. Right, right. I wanted to just clarify because uh, I, I think... It, clarify away. <laughs> Stuart, well, you speak in code. Most people do yeah. not speak in uh, in video yeah. codes. And yeah. I, see Paul, I see Paul does not e either. So. No, no. It's whenever I hear RVUs, I just, I, I lock in. I get so excited. My heart starts racing. Oh, I, I know it does. I sweat that rolls on my head. Uh, Anna, Anna Maria, I wanted to ask the the sending site that was so in our in our example here, the sending site is the primary care physician with their patient, and they're they're calling, they're contacting a teleroomatology, a rheumatologist so, somewhere else, and so the hospital well, that's, that's that's confusing. It's actually so so if I send a patient to a site, and that patient 
um, connects remotely to me. So I bill a specific ENM code with a GT or GQ modifier for asynchronous or synchronous. And then the the originating site who's sending me the information bills a separate HixPix code, oh, which is separate and apart from the 99451 <laughs> that the consulting How provider How is that clarifying any, now what That doesn't clarify wrong. anything. And this is the reason why I didn't, I didn't want to get into that because it's, it's, you are way can we can we take a step back for a minute? So I, I'm <laughs> I'm a med student. Um, so just taking a step back for a minute, can we kind of summarize? So we've talked about a lot of the nitty gritty details. We've talked about some of the coding that we can use, some of the ways that we can collaborate with other kind of aspects of the telehealth experience, some of the legal and ethical hurdles. Can we talk for a minute about just let's say five years from now, I'm starting a practice. What are kind of the basic steps that I would be taking to start implementing telehealth? And is there any way that I could kind of get some experience uh, in doing that before I dove in? Sure. I think it's important to think what is available in your setting. So some EHRs have um, have the opportunity to, to have built-in tele or e-visits of some kind. You know, is that meet your needs? But just, again, to think of the technology as a tool. So in your day-to-day work, what is it that would be helpful to you and your patients? So, for example, uh, so I'm an oncologist, and I'm in the Philadelphia area and in southern New Jersey, and um, there's bad weather. So I know that when the weather's bad, it's hard for people to get in. Still, people need to be seen. So trying to proactively have people sign up for telemedicine so they've got the little app and that if it's going to be bad weather, we can call ahead and say, hey, Mrs. Smith, you know, tomorrow, let's uh, do your visit as a televisit instead. Mm -hmm. So those sorts of things where we think what would be of benefit for my patient population and uh, what's available to me to try to meet that need. It's important, I think, not to try to do too much. You know, um, try to be focused, try to have some early wins, and, and also because that's what gets you familiar so that you get a sense of, okay, this is how the technology works. You as a clinician and, and also that the patients can start to get a sense of, oh, you know, I heard that, um, you know, my friend goes to see Dr. Smith and, you know, they did this and it seemed to work really well. So the patients begin to have experience, the docs begin to have experience. Another way is to do education because, again, it's a way to get people familiar with the technology. Mm-hmm. Um And there's so many possibilities. So I'm really interested in wellness. You know, how do you keep cancer patients well? So doing exercise classes at a distance, um, doing, uh, you know, checking in with nutrition, doing group visits around nutrition services. So again, patients can get used to the technology in a setting that feels less clinical. Uh, Also now, you know, everybody's used FaceTime. So the concept is very familiar to people. You know, when I used to um, 
talk at the beginning, I would say, well, it's kind of like talking to your doctor on TV. Uh, now it's just like talking to your grandkids on FaceTime. So I think that uh, the concepts have certainly become much more commonplace. But um, find what you think would really be helpful for the patients and, um, and get some early wins. As I'm thinking through, we a lot of this is sort of appropriately patient-centered, but I would also be curious to know in terms of how providers feel about telehealth and if it's improved their wellness or satisfaction at yeah. all. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I can speak to that only because we've piloted at several different facilities. Um, so I, I, I put the current PCMH core team workflow you can see there. So at two different points, we uh, would rebook into a telehealth, either a week before the appointment when the appointment's being reviewed by the LVN. And then at our huddle, which is a, a week, um, every week, one half day for that team, they review all appointments that are appointed for the next week. The LVN calls every every patient a week for their appointment. Uh, they will order the labs, order all the medication refills and everything. And then they will talk with the RN about rescheduling it to telehealth. Let's say if the patient was seen like a couple weeks ago. And so they will automatically reschedule it into telehealth. And then at the huddle, they meet with the provider. The provider then says, almost like quarterbacks, it says, you know what? I can see this one as telehealth. I can see this one as telehealth. And they open up access by doing that. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the the patients like it more and um, the burnout score. So I do a Mosla, the, uh, Maslach burnout inventory and, uh, uh, job satisfaction inventory. So those scores have improved by about 30% with this workflow. Stuart, to recap what you said, you said you have like a, you have some nurse calls and kind of screens the patient, handles right. whatever is pretty right. easy to do, labs and, you know, request the med refills. And right. then they report to a, a higher level nurse who then huddles with you and you kind of run your patient list for the yeah. week and you decide right. like, oh, these patients don't have much going on. They don't need to come in. We can, I can right. call them on the phone and see how they're doing. Right. Okay. Each, R, each RN has two to three teams and each team has about, uh, keep in mind, these are very high acuity patients, has about a thousand patients each. So each RN is responsible for up to 3000 patients. Each LVN has about 500 patients. So it is manning intensive and resource intensive. But uh, we've reduced hospital uh, readmission rates by as much as 7% from for CHF patients from 20% down to 13%. Um, so, I mean, the, the data is good. And all this is internal PI at this point, but we will, we will be publishing this. Ana Maria, did you have any, any follow-up to that? Yeah, yeah. So I think that the satisfaction data um, would be high for patients. Mm-hmm as well as for the clinicians. Right. Part of it, you know, it, I think we have to look at that with a little bit of a grain of salt just because I think part of it may be it's novel and part of it from the patient endpoint may be, you know, the, the comparison is that I have to travel four hours, four hours back, spend all this money, you know, getting there and and this way I get the care I need. So. So I know that those that's sort of what the critics would say. But on the other hand, the patient satisfaction and the outcomes are um, are, are similar and, and as I said, in some cases better. So so I think the data would be good. One of the things that I am um, always concerned about, and so I'm so glad that you brought up the wellness piece that um, because is this are we structuring this as just another way to accumulate the RBUs, let's say? Right. And, yeah. um, and, and I think that in it, it could 
you know, it could be. And so we always have to be worried about potential threats there. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I, I really do think that there is something that just feels good about, I met that patient's needs. Right. You know, I was right there when they needed it. And, you know, because I could catch that early, I made a difference in that person's life. And yeah. I think that that sense of us feeling that we've made a difference and really seeing it uh, and patients also seeing it. So that's what, what helps, I think, build the relationship. Mm -hmm. That's a real aha moment. And, uh, and that's, I think, what keeps it positive. One of the common things that I hear uh, doing a telehealth program in, in PCM clinics is that it, it gives the provider a semblance of control in an otherwise uncontrolled, chaotic healthcare system. So it, that way they have options to deliver that healthcare instead of feeling like they have to meet the need at the in the office. And, uh, and that's actually the, the same kind of feedback that we receive from the patients too, because the patients can make that decision as well. It's not up to the physician that says, you know, 100%, we're going to reschedule this as telehealth. They call the patient and it's a shared decision-making. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it sounds like you're nicely resourced. I think the, the concern, uh, I mean, I think the obvious concern is this sort of the monkey's paw of access. If yeah. you have more ability to see patients, you'll be expected to see more patients. And if this mm -hmm. is additive instead mm -hmm. of instead of, or it's not done in a thoughtful way, Right. Instead, you're increasing provider burden and, and actually ultimately providing, providing worse care and maybe facilitating burnouts. So I think that's the right. If, if you have the the resources to set it up in the way that that Stewart's um, program seems to seems to be very thoughtful and very well staffed and have a lot of rigid mechanisms in place, fabulous. I can see how everyone wins there. But I think if this is hey, this sounds neat and a way to see more patients, then I, I can see it being <laughs> potentially detrimental. And and this is why I think physicians have to take that leading role because if we don't, then you know we're going to be stuck making decisions that are not our own. Ana Maria, have you seen this well implemented in primary care? Or do you do you know of any instances where it's being used very effectively in a primary care clinic? So I think Kaiser has been doing um, primary care telemedicine. I do think that it's a great application in primary care. And it would be great to integrate education of telemedicine you know, medical school and mm. residency so that learners can begin to not only have exposure, but to mm. really develop expertise in how to develop the relationship, how to do the evaluations all at a distance. And it's just part and parcel of what we do. Um, but, but I do think that uh, primary care is, is a great application and mm. that that's an area that definitely needs um needs more study, that a lot of the work has been, you know, in this very particular field, in teledermatology, in telepsychiatry, in tele-room, uh, you know, what, because we're talking about sending to specialty care, uh, but there's a lot of specialty care that happens in internal medicine, and how can those aspects, not only uh, where the you know, what are the right settings in which to do, to switch to a teleconsultation, but also with the complexity of care, how to bring in different pieces of that care together for the benefit of the patient and have some of those pieces be tele, uh, approaches. Mm -hmm. Ana Maria, I wanted to ask you for a couple take-home points. We could 
you know, we're known for long shows. We could keep asking you questions forever, <laughs> but I want to let you get back onto your night and you've, you've given us so much great stuff already. So what are a couple of favorite take home points that you, you have for the audience? Sure. You know, it's increasing growth in the population. We have this anticipated silver tsunami. We have increases in chronic illness. We're trying to address this through team-based care. And with what I'm really excited about, which is a focus on prevention and early detection. And I think telemedicine can be a part of that because telemedicine can really help us to prevent disease. We need to go where the people are. Telemedicine helps us to do that so that we're not only saying, oh, we're going to prevent the cost of the disease from a dollars and cents standpoint, but we're going to prevent the cost of the disease from a physical, from the emotional toll that it takes on patients and families, because we're there with the patient when they need us, providing the right care and being able to do that in real time. So as again, I said, as this touchy-feely person who is not the most uh, technically astute at times, um, I love this because it allows us to bring back the house call. We are virtually available there to the patients when they need us. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please right, subscribe, Paul. rate and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Hannah Abrams, to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Yay. Twitter. <laughs> Uh, Beth Guards Garbatelli on Instagram and Chris Chumanchu on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. <laughs> I think you read that script <laughs> correct. <laughs> so have I. Good reading. And I've been Hannah R. Abrams. I, I don't understand what's happening. I remain Paul Williams. <laughs> Thanks. Good night. <laughs> well, hi, Paul. <laughs> Why did the patient keep bringing his telephone to the uh, uh, the his his appointment? Why? He was told to telephone if he had any questions. I'm just gonna leave that sit, and yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to listen. I'll see if I get it the second time when I'm listening back. He's going. He's trying to tell a phone. Oh, telephone. tell. Oh, ah, I see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>